Exterior. The walls outside Denis Cantaire's fortress. Morning. Six weeks into shooting, Cyber Cowboys was wildly over budget, and any concept of a schedule was gone. After the fracas of the first few days, on-set security had tightened drastically. A quasi-police state had formed, with random searches carried out and external communication prohibited. The Rob Zombies had started giving out parking tickets. Despite the total crackdown on set, information started to leak out. The Hollywood trade publications were quick to put out any story they heard come through. They shot horses, didn't they? 50 horses dead on Cyber Cowboy set. Variety. Truck filled with military explosives goes missing near Cyber Cowboy's set. Hollywood Reporter. Cyber Cowboy's triples budget, plus deaths. What does this mean for the world of fishing? Saltwater Sportsman Magazine. The entire state of Utah was on red alert. Thanks for slithering on into the lizard hour with the lizard, I'm the lizard. Special PSA to all the residents of southern Utah. You may have seen a large obelisk-type structure that Denis Cantar is living in now on the set of his movie. He has a giant telescope that he's using to watch over the town. Picture the sort of the Tower of Sauron from Lord of the Rings, which I know is difficult to do since the Lord of the Rings movie hasn't been made yet. Residents are advised not to go within 100 yards of the obelisk or the set in its entirety. Up next, we got David Bowie, China Girl. It was only a matter of time before those stories made their way around the world. President Yeltsin, how do you plan to fix the dire economic conditions in Russia? What really bothers me are the onset conditions on Cyber Cowboys. Hollywood must be out of their damn minds. This weird little Svengali Denis Canter is not my kind of director. I like a nice 9 a.m. call time. Doritos at craft services, out by 5.30, nobody needs overtime. It's about work-life balance. So many stories were leaking that Denis became convinced that there was a mole on set. And you know what? He was right. Film critic Alagash White wrote for The New Yorker from 1989 to 2008. He was known for his controversial, often elitist sensibilities and his trademark violent prose. As the man himself put it in an interview, Well, the critic's responsibility is to be in dogged conflict with the artists he critiques. Great epiphanies come from conflict. I have no ill will towards these artists, I promise. Here's some excerpts from some of the film critics' more incendiary reviews. Saving Private Ryan The cornucopia of carnage that opens Saving Private Ryan is rendered moot by the opening shot of Tom Hanks' butterball face. Hanks will be spared to carry out the rest of Spielberg's marching orders. Mr. Spielberg, I have half a mind to slap you. When Harry Met Sally Instead of paying attention to this movie, I played a movie in my head called When Rob Reiner Met Me. Not a lot of kissing in that. The film critic really seemed to have it out for Ron Howard. Apollo 13 Before seeing Apollo 13, I had been following Ron Howard's career for several years with disdain. Now, I have been following Ron Howard around New York for about five days. A Beautiful Mind This movie is about a man who is increasingly paranoid that there is a grand conspiracy surrounding him and that there is danger lurking around each corner. To its director, Ron Howard, sometimes that danger is real. Sometimes it's watching, waiting in the shadows. Sometimes it has an axe. 
His review of the live-action Grinch movie was a series of letters cut out from a magazine that spelled out Ron Howard's home address and a recipe for mustard gas. We were able to briefly catch up with Allagash on the phone. Good tidings. Hello, Allagash. It's nice to meet you. We're both big fans. I loved your vicious takedown of Goodfellas. A dull film for dull minds. Absolutely. Oh my god. You wouldn't understand. So do you still write movie reviews? Alas, film criticism is a dead profession. Though I have been recently able to pay my rent in Harlem writing reviews for a publication called BuzzFeed. They do movie reviews? Uh, sort of. I publish something called the Bisexualometer, where we measure each new film by how bisexual it is, from a scale of homework to iced coffee. Huh. You see, bisexual kids never did homework, but iced coffee is very bisexual indeed. Sounds like you miss being a film critic. It was a wonderful vocation in the days of print media. We did some amazing work, like my investigation into cyber cowboys. Yes, you were able to infiltrate the set, correct? Quite effectively, I might add. I was a regular Jean Gabin in La Grande Illusion. <laughs> so funny. Okay, uh, can you take us through how you embedded yourself in what you found? Sadly, no. I have to set about rewatching all of the Rocky movies for the bisexualometer. Something tells me they're going to be seven homeworks. I think four is a little iced coffee. Perhaps. I'll send you the recordings I took. Good day. The recordings? Allagash White relayed all of his findings on set in a series of tape recordings addressed to his editor. Mother, I'm entering the town of Kanab. I'm en route to speak with a Pearl Huet about becoming one of the extras. I believe I can best acclimate myself and remain undetected by posing as a simple desert resident. Allagash strolled onto set wearing his trademark tweed jacket and purple ascot, but he disguised himself with a sombrero and snakeskin boots. Thanks to the continued chaos on set, he was able to go relatively unnoticed by everybody except... Excuse me, Denis, Pearl, may I pinch off a bit of sand from your hourglass? <sighs> Can I speak to you? Yes, Billy Clientel. Proceed. But speak quickly. I have to go chain down the porta potties so people don't steal them. I just thought I'd let you know that there appears to be a spider in the chili. Who made chili? I specifically said there would be no food until we got that shot of Costner crying. I think he's doing one of those turns of phrase. Of course, I prefer saying it with your chest. Who's the spider? Now I can't tell you that. That wouldn't be very sporting of me. Pearl, go tell Michael Chicklets that I want you two to track down this Benedict Arnold among us. Benedict Arnold? Who is that? Just do it, damn you. All right, good grief. So Pearl set off to find Michael Chicklets and deliver Denise's message. She found him at the southwest fence, surrounded by the rest of the Rob Zombies. All right, Frank, you and Tommy secure the perimeter. I want two of you hiding on that tree. You three on top of the hill with that 50 cal. 
This is a shoot-on-site situation. What's going on? Are we under attack? Kind of. These squirrels keep chewing through the power lines. Well, Denis asked us to handle something for him personally. He wants us to investigate everybody on set and find Benedict Arnold. Who the hell is that? I don't know. I was hoping you knew. Benedict Arnold. Oh, Arnold. Oh, like Terminator Arnold. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Must have been like his birth name or something. So we need to find the strongest guy on set. Why would he want us to find a really strong guy? Huh. Well, strong guys are very intimidating. Who would we want to intimidate? The town? Hell no. Those guys are awesome. They got me drunk and stuff. Okay, well, if it's not the townsfolk, that means there's someone bad on set. On the set? Why would someone on the set be bad? We're all on the same team. Unless there's somebody not on our team. Pretending. Like a mole. So this Ben Arnold Terminator must be a strong guy who is going to torture everyone until we find out who the mole is. Of course. So Pearl and Michael, completely by accident, set out to do almost exactly what they were supposed to do. Almost. Within 30 minutes, Pearl and Michael had all the extras lined up in the desert. We have assembled you all here because there is a mole in our midst. That's crazy. I recognize most of you. But you there, in the Ascot Sombrero, you don't seem too familiar. You don't know me because I'm from Flagstaff. Huh. Well, I mean, good point. Now... You may be wondering, how are we going to find this mole? That's where you fit in. We need the strongest guy here to help us torture everyone until we find out who the mole is. It just so happened that, at this moment, Allagash White was in the best shape of his life. He had been preparing to kill Ron Howard by doing a daily rigorous boxing and powerlifting regimen. He was basically a Navy SEAL. The feat of strength is thus... I'm going to jack that car up like I'm going to change its tire, and then I'm going to lie under it. At that point, Eric will pull the jack away, and whoever picks up the car off of me wins. Michael, can I talk to you for a second? Okay, it has come to my attention that if I do that, I might die. We will change the feet. Marlon Brando's gonna come lay on me. Pearl and Michael convinced Marlon that they were casting for an upcoming production of Sleepy King Lear. Marlon was thrilled with the idea of acting with Outstanding and immediately obliged. All right, that's pretty much everybody who hasn't gone yet. All reason not the need, our basis beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. Hey, you Flagstaff, you've been reluctant as hell to do this feat. Maybe you're the mole. Ah! I mean, no, I'm not. I will lift this titan. Allow not nature more than nature <laughs> Allagash does a power clean of Marlon Brando and then does three more reps. Hell yeah! Flagstaff, I hereby deputize you as the Ben Arnold Terminator. You will find our mole. You know, Will, we don't like politics here on A Closer Look. Yep, 
I'm a communist. But what we do like is getting paid. And paying us to do a political ad is Grover Meemaw. Hello, I'm Grover Meemaw, local gas station inspector for the town of Brazil, Iowa. And I want to continue serving in my community by running for the most important position here in Brazil, the town lumberjack. Here in Brazil, Iowa, we have seven roads. Seven. And trees grow around these roads at an abnormally fast rate. As lumberjack, it is my job to clear these roads of the trees, no matter how much said trees may try to stop me. We all know that the mysterious cloud that claims five residents returns every Thanksgiving. And if those roads aren't clear, none of us will be able to get to the vacuum-sealed cloud shelter in time. My opponent, Broom Kennedy, claims to be a direct descendant of John F. Kennedy. But it is my belief that he is an agent of chaos hired by the trees to do their bidding, as they believe that this land we farm on is rightfully theirs. I'm not gonna lie to you. We did some pretty bad shit to the indigenous people of this area 225 years ago. Could that be related to the Thanksgiving mist and the trees which go to war with us? Who's to say? But if elected, I will get to the bottom of everything. In particular, I will get to the bottom of that well that never ends on road five. It just has to end somewhere, right? It just has to. I will find the bottom of that well and possibly Broom Kennedy's birthplace. Maybe down there I will find a switch that turns off the ringing noise that can only be heard by children and the intoxicated. So on election day, head down road six to the end where it turns into a spiral. The two pits in the middle of the spiral are the voting pits. The left pit is for Grover Meemaw. So be sure to throw your chicken head into the left pit. Do not listen to any voices on the wind telling you to throw your chicken head into the right pit. Those are the trees trying to trick you. That is voter intimidation, and it is unconstitutional. Of course, the trees do not care, as a mere document written on paper made from the carcass of their dead relatives is nothing to these thousand-year-old beings. done a damn sight better than infiltrate the set. I've become the chief investigator of the mole finding operation. I've been tasked to find myself. And I can assure you that my journey of self-discovery will go rather slowly. <laughs> With Allagash promoted to chief himself hunter, the investigation into the mole ground to a halt. In that time, production resumed and many people on set forgot about the mole, since production itself was so demanding. Mother, I'm going to film my big scene today. It appears that I've been graduated from a simple background filler role to a one-line walk-on. I'm going to play a cult member in some metropolis they are building called Neo Phoenix. 
This Neo Phoenix is a ghastly place, lots of golf courses for the polo shirt type. I mean, it would take the end of the world for me to live there. <laughs> Much like the old Phoenix. <laughs> hey, put that walkie-talkie down and help me get this bucket off my foot. Sorry, mother, duty calls. Neo Phoenix was, much like everything else in this movie, indescribably large and wildly over budget. Here is set designer Eusebio Crisco's logic behind his vision of the city. All right, Brosev, what's this whole deal? We are making uh, this beautiful city. We are turning Phoenix into a sort of uh, post-apocalyptic wasteland. Mr. Gorilla, have you ever been to Phoenix? Are you aware of his many golf courses? Honestly, I've never played a sport. I'm all about tits. Okay, well, this is a kind of golf course city. Very American concept. I have no idea what you're talking about, man. Neo Phoenix is the post-apocalyptic mega-metropolis that Kevin Costner and his crew go to to hide out from Marlon Brando's assassins and plan their heist of the internet train. While they are there, they do battle with the cult that has taken over the city. But how do you make a futuristic city out of Phoenix? The set designer's idea for Neo Phoenix was for it to emulate the cyberpunk futuristic Los Angeles of Blade Runner. Will, have you seen Blade Runner? Oh yeah, Blade Runner, Ryan Gosling. Kanye loves that movie. Well, in the Ridley Scott Blade Runner... They made a sequel? Yeah. The natural sort of suburban sprawl of Los Angeles was turned into a city full of skyscrapers and flying cars. Phoenix was a little harder. There's nothing there. Except golf courses. Over time, the golf course corporations seized all of the land that made up Phoenix, and once society collapsed by 2022, the entire city was one giant golf course. The people of Neo Phoenix lived in massive redwood trees on a sprawling golf course and traveled from tree to tree. The trees were inflated by Eusebio. Instead of flying cars, the masses of Neo Phoenix traveled around in souped-up V8 golf carts with armor and weapons on them. Yeah, Mad Max stole a lot of stuff from this. The documentary crew went up into Jacket Coldweather's Spitfire for a massive aerial shot of this incredible set. All right, descend now. Roll camera. Jacket, I want us going as low to the trees as possible. We'll strafe these jerrys so low they'll think we're flying out of the ground. Look at them scatter like rats. Oh, shit! The fuck are you doing? No guns! Just a warning shot to wake them up, nothing too sour. Pulling up the cruising height, Admiral. Jacket Coldweather had both armed and loaded the Spitfire without anyone knowing. The strafing gunfire hit one of Eusebio's large trees, which began to deflate. Ten extras had to dive off of the inflatable tree as it collapsed. The injuries halted production for the day. The next day, they finally accomplished that beautiful aerial shot. The camera sails through the redwoods over the bounding hills of the massive golf course. Armored golf carts jump over the hills, chasing after each other. Fireworks explode in the sky. It's one of the most remarkable tracking shots of all time. The camera rapidly zooms in and circles around Kevin Costner's awestruck face as he looks up at, what else, a baseball stadium. The city of Neo Phoenix is run by the cult of the Arizona Diamondbacks. They live in the arena named the Mausoleum, the largest building in town. They pray to the big unit, 
a massive serpent who, according to them, lives under the stadium and will periodically come up to feast on heretics and non-believers. This is where Costner and his crew are taken after their betrayal by Seagal's character. He sells them to the Arizona Diamondbacks cult, who then take the crew to the mausoleum to be fed to the big unit in front of a delirious crowd. In one scene, Kevin Costner bravely travels into the mausoleum with Rolando Netscape and Susie Short, the renegade Cortana. Costner attempts to barter with the cult members, offering some of his most valuable information in exchange for Cookie's the Librarian's life. See if you can spot Allagash White in this scene. Listen, if you spare the lady, I'll give you enough slips to buy a thousand guns. I mean, this information is priceless. Information don't mean shit to us. We want offerings. You got a shiny lady behind you. What are you getting at? You wouldn't like it if we up and fed her to the big snake. <laughs> also, Allagash is looking directly into the camera as he says this. This scene is filled with emotional heft because Bookman and the other three members of his crew here are all wrestling with as-yet-unspoken romantic notions. All towards one another. The plot features a very confusing, convoluted, four-sided love triangle. Try to stay with us. Costner is in love with the librarian. The librarian is in love with Rolando Netscape. And he has a crazy computer fetish, so he's in love with the Cortana, who in turn fell in love with the first man she saw after deprogramming herself from the train's operating system, who was, of course, Costner. Also throughout the movie, there's a lot of very subtle homoerotic moments between Bookman and Rolando Netscape as they begin to trust one another. And less surprisingly, there is an out-of-nowhere 6-minute and 25-second-long sex scene between Librarian and the Cortana that is full frontal. And full bactal. And set to an original song by Money McDonald's that plays in its entirety. They're like two minor strings of batteries linked up. They're not supposed to do that, but it's sex electric. Sex electric. That's eight seconds of a six minute and 25 second song. I mean, God damn. And it truly derails the plot like they're being shot at. And Cookie suddenly says she has some ayahuasca that they should all do. And after that scene, Costner's character gives a monologue about the transformative powers of ayahuasca that wasn't in the script, but was delivered to Costner word for word off the cuff by Denis. Anyway, this day was pretty much the only successful day of shooting that the production had had up to this point. So everybody was pretty pumped. Allagash recaps it in another message to his secretary. Mother, today was a triumph. One hesitates to say that the spirit of Olivier is alive and well in modern cinema. But damned if I didn't feel the tickle of Richard III as I said my line about the big snake. Allagash retires to his motel room to enjoy some sherry and a quiet evening. Or so he thought. The next morning, Allagash delivers a shocking message to his editor. Mother, something incredibly strange and disconcerting happened to me last night. Looking to celebrate my performance, I wandered into the town of Kanab in pursuit of some more sherry. Instead, I stumbled upon a mystery. And here's the thing. Allagash is about to tell a story, and he's going to use a lot of SAT words, and you're going to be like, God damn, dude. But the story is insane, so just stick with it. I actually thought his prose was quite striking, but to each their own. I was sitting on the edge of a porch, as people do out here, and I heard the town sheriff Bobtail Nag talking about a deal out in the desert. 
And I thought to myself, this is one hell of a parallax view. So I said I must discreetly find my way into Bobtail Nag's truck. So you would think that he would just hide in the flatbed, lay in the back seat, throw some shovels over himself or something. Instead, Allagash White, for some reason, disguised himself as the passenger seat. Like he removed the actual seat from the truck, sliced the seat open, gutted it, took all the foam shit out, got inside, and waited for Bobtail Nag. Almost three hours later, had to be nearly dawn at this point, he got into the car, we then drove another 40 minutes before finally coming to a halt deep in the desert. At this point, Sheriff Nag exited the vehicle and began to discuss a deal with some voices I could not make out. One man mentioned he had 50 speeds. They would go on to continue to refer to the other drugs under code names borrowed from various film titles. They spoke of the color of money, clearly a reference to the green of marijuana. They then spoke of a truckload of 1492 Conquest of Paradise. Now, it doesn't take an Allagash White to figure out the film reference there. 1492, The Conquest of Paradise, of course, is the truly awful biopic starring Gerard Depardieu as Christopher Columbus. Columbus, of course, Columbia, which is, of course, cocaine. Lastly, they discussed a truly rare quantity of what they called Chung King Express. I have to admit this one was a bit of a stumper. We know, of course, that the city of Chongqing was one of the final stops on the Silk Road, which, as we know, travels right through the regions of the world notorious for cultivating the poppy plant and dealing in what else? Black tar heroin. But Allagash makes a crucial mistake. I couldn't help myself, Mother. At the mention of Chongqing Express, I had to let my feelings emit. I muttered, What a marvelous film. Truly no one has evoked early Godard with the same balance of conviction and whimsy. It speaks to a new generation. A voice then yelled at Bobtail Nag, What the fuck was that? Is there somebody in your car talking about Jean-Luc Godard? Bobtail was quick to dispel that, but they examined the car. Sheriff Nag then said, Unless my passenger seat can talk, I think you're hearing things. It was at this point, Mother, that the drug deal mercifully ended, and Sheriff Nag drove back to town right before dawn. Bobtail Nag enters his house, and Allagash immediately bursts out of the car. With his long legs sticking out of the car seat carcass, Allagash sprints to the closest safe refuge he can find, the Museum of Western Film History. There are townsfolk still milling around outside of the museum, but Allagash is too quick for them. His arms are stuck inside the costume, so he is forced to headbutt the door with the car seat headrest. Colt Winchester lets him in. The next day on set, a crucial scene is filmed in Cyber Cowboys. Here's the scene in Denise's words. Money is a sham. Think about it. It's the only piece of paper that no facts are printed on. Only lies. That's where I got the idea. After making peace with the Diamondbacks, Bookman and Rolando take a steamy shower in the player's locker room. After this, they open Kurt Schilling's locker. Remember he played for the Diamondbacks? World Series MVP, first to three. Belongs in the hall. Anyway, here's an excerpt of the dialogue from the scene. Rolando, come look at this locker with me. Here, lean in. Press your cheek to mine and look at this. 
Wow, that's a lot of slips. These guys are loaded. Let me see these slips. Wait a minute. Rutherford B. Hayes was the king of France. The Arnold Palmer was named after two guys named Arnold and Palmer. Ayahuasca's bad for you. All these facts are fake. It's all fake. But all these facts came straight from Infotrain. Don't you get it, you beautiful sandy blonde fool? All these facts are fake. They're giving out bad information. It's... it's fake news. Now, I know it's a few years late on that now, but this was 96. I mean, goddamn. Pretty crazy. As soon as that scene ended, Saturday Lewis switched right into character. It just so happened that, of all the characters who have ever lived, the character he picked was one he had seen act the previous day. And cut. Excellent work, Kevin and Saturday. You boys rub all that grease off of yourselves. Ah, ever so kind of you. I wish I could put this oil on a salad nissoise. Oh, fuck. It's Ben Arnold Terminator. You're back. Like the rising sun, I am here. Did you find the mole? Just to clear things up, right now, Saturday is anti-method acting, pretending to be Allagash. And Pearl, who spent all day yesterday with the real Allagash, for some reason, thinks that Saturday is Allagash. Ha 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 darling, I am the mole. I beg your pardon? If you are looking for an evildoer, look no further than me, New Yorker film critic Allagash White, who once wrote a terrible pan of Saturday Lewis's performance in Ho Chi Minh. What the fucking Sam hell? I mean, uh, <clears throat> what is going on? Saturday Lewis read all of his reviews, and he remembered all the times that Alan Gash White had called his acting, quote, such a rancid specimen of canned ham that he would be rejected from the spam factory. And Saturday knew exactly who Flagstaff really was. Yes, Denis. Right now, I am writing incredibly poorly written articles about all the things you do on set. I'm the mole. Holy shit. Michael, Michael, get over here. What's going on? Flagstaff is the mole. No, he's not. He's Ben Arnold Terminator. No, he's been bad the whole time. First of all, fuck. Second of all, okay, let's take him down. Not me, you fools. Michael, stop, stop. What? I got him. No, that's an actor. The real Flagstaff mole is somewhere in town. So this guy was just here, and now he's already in town. Man, this guy's fast as fuck. No, you idiot. He was in town the whole time. This is someone else. We don't know where he is. Okay, so we gotta find him. It's all hands on dick. It's all hands on dick. It is? Shit, well... Well, I've I've been sounding pretty gay. The Rob Zombies drove around aimlessly for hours, with no idea where Allagash White could be. Eventually, the documentary crew captured this interaction with Mayor Dunson. Yes, ma'am? I heard you're looking for a suspicious character. I was walking in circles around the Western Museum for various reasons when we saw a man with long legs wearing a car seat run into the museum. 
I don't know who he is, but he dropped this in Ascot. Allagash had been hanging with Colt Winchester. Allagash and I had a wonderful day. We probably watched about four or five westerns. What did you watch? Duel in the Sun. Ooh. Ride the High Country. Randolph Scott. Please, 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 please. We are way over time on this episode. Can you just tell us what happened? Well, as I was accustomed to, a large posse formed right outside the museum. The people of Kanab, they walked up to the front porch but refused to step on it. The biker gang, on the other hand, took one of their members and began using him as a battering ram, bashing his head against the door. Allagash begged me to help him escape, so I showed him my DVD tunnels. Your DVD tunnels? Yes, I keep my DVDs ultra-secure in underground tunnels. No one knows where that tunnel ends except for me. But I sent Allagash through the tunnels and said, Hey, borrow anything you see on the way out that you like. He ran out, and the biker gang broke down the door. They turned the whole damn place upside down, but Mr. White was gone. What about the townsfolk? Well, the door was broken down, and they sure seemed like they wanted to come in. But they didn't. The townsfolk refused to cross the threshold. Why? Next time on A Closer Look.